It is well known that when faced with a challenge, you can utilize your skills and experiences that worked for you in the past. But how can running and feminism be useful in improving your cancer care experience and that of others who come after you? The forthcoming conversation gives some insights. I'm Bogda Kozwara, and this is Supportive Care Matters. Today's conversation is sponsored by Canteen. I'm Bogda Kozwara, a medical oncologist and cancer researcher from Adelaide, Australia. My guest today is Phyllis Burke. Phyllis is an educator and capacity builder with long-time experience in the public sector in Canada, an accomplished long-distance runner and sports enthusiast, married to a fellow runner, a proud auntie to 24 nieces and nephews. Phyllis is also a cancer survivor and for the past four years has been involved in transforming healthcare at the University Health Networks in Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Phyllis. Thank you very much, Bogda. It's wonderful to be here with you. Tell us a little bit of how you arrived at that role at University Health Network and what your role is exactly. Okay, well, it's a bit of a story about, I think in 2016, a day after a long run, I run four four or so days a week. I woke up with an extremely painful right breast and I knew that that wasn't normal. It was a long weekend, so it was hard for me to see somebody right away, but I eventually had an appointment made at Princess Margaret, which is our hospital in Canada, actually a leading hospital in Canada for treating cancer. And long story short, I was diagnosed with DCIS, ductal carcinogen in situ. I was dumbfounded by this diagnosis. There is no history of cancer in my family. I'm very fit. As you've already alluded, I do a lot of exercise. I think I eat quite well, don't smoke. I didn't fit any profile that would suggest that this was something that I would experience. I had had regular mammograms, but nothing untoward was ever indicated. So I was dumbfounded and I went through a probably pretty common process of why me? What had caused this? You know, I mean, I had this rational sense that there must have been something I did somewhere. And it was very traumatizing, very traumatizing, very shocking. I was grateful that I did not have cancer per se. I had a number of mammograms to confirm the diagnosis. And the oncologist recommended that I have a mastectomy, which also I I just was not prepared for that. I also needed information and I needed people to talk to. And I discovered that I wasn't getting that from Princess Margaret, which was very disappointing to me, but I am comforted by information. I have a need to know. I have a need to understand. So being the kind of woman that I am, and and I suppose in some ways growing up in second wave feminism, I said, all right, (laughs) you know, this is on me. I have to find out the answers to the questions that I want. And so I did probably a very typical female thing, which is I brought in my network. I got in the women in my life and said, I need to know other runners, other athletes, if you can't find runners who have had to make a decision about mastectomies and second steps. I need to know different things. So I had a network across the country of people, of women that I talked to who'd had different procedures, try to understand how they'd come to make the decisions that they'd had to make. Sort of completing the circle, I had my surgery, I had opted for immediate breast reconstruction, and there proved to be a 
research available that supported that decision. But, you know, these are the kind of things that were not made available to me. So I kind of stumbled on to them by talking to somebody who talked to somebody and that kind of thing. And I'd had actually a quite astonishingly wonderful plastic surgeon who himself was a master's athlete in triathlon. And so he got who I was. He understood my love of physical activity, how I define myself as an athlete, as a master's athlete, and how important it was for me to be able to do in the future what I had been able to do in the past. And he assured me that I would be able to do that. And he was the only medical person I engaged with who gave me a lot of time, answered my questions, and gave me the confidence that my life was going to be okay. So I proceeded with these these series of procedures. And indeed, six months after my surgery, I ran the Chicago Marathon, which on hindsight was probably a bit early, but but it confirmed that he was right and that I was going to be okay. But I have to say that in the aftermath of my cancer experience, I was very, very angry. Like I was really pissed, you know? I felt that no one anywhere understood the trauma of patience. And my cancer was relatively minor. I mean, in the continuum, it was early. Yes, I lost my right breast, but I didn't lose anything else. I didn't have to have chemo or radiation. So I was lucky, really lucky. But I was so angry at the way I was treated slash mistreated. Medically speaking, the care was unparalleled. But psychosocial, Seeing me as a whole person, not just as a cancer patient or even as a DCIS, you know, category, that wasn't there. So I complained a lot, actually, to my GP when I went to see her. And I think she finally got tired of my, my rants in her office. And she discovered after a session provided for family physicians about alternatives resources that she thought this was something I might be interested in. So I investigated, put my name in, had an interview, had to provide references, talk to the team that runs the program, and I became a patient partner. And it, you know, from a not good experience, it has developed into an extraordinary experience. Probably like a lot of things, it's good timing. The UHN is really engaging in patient, with patients, patient partners, very thoroughly. It goes well beyond the experience of cancer patients, although that was certainly my initial focus. And it's a credit to the hospital that it gives space for people like me who really, you know, when people said, I had this particular kind of experience, I don't want anybody else to go through this. I thought, what does that mean? But, you know, <laughs> I understand exactly what that means. I understand exactly what that means. And there's about 130, 140 people like me who also understand what that means. We had not so good experiences. We survived that. We want to change the system. We want to change the environment. So people no longer have to go through the additional trauma when they get a diagnosis that they're not prepared for, a diagnosis that could change their life dramatically and that of their their families. And this is your way of paying forward in a way after a sort of traumatic experience and making sure that it doesn't feel as traumatic for people who might come after. You know, this, this really crummy experience where I did not get the support I was looking for. And I can assure you, I articulated very clearly 
what I needed. I'm good at that. I know how to do that. But it didn't make any difference. I just wasn't getting it. So I did it myself. But, you know, because I'm English speaking, because I'm white, because I'm heterosexual, I mean, who knows? You know, I just know how to to make things work. That's my skill set. That's not good enough. And my desire to be an intervener, to be an educator, to be a transformer was well-timed because the UHN as an entity is involved in this in a big way. So as I say, oddly enough, this not very good experience turned out to be very good for me. So give me some examples of the things that you do. Well, all throughout the UHN, which, which covers a number of major hospitals and rehab centers in Toronto. So it's a very large entity, but throughout the system, there are safety and quality care committees. Everybody has them. Princess Margaret has been quite a leader in, in this respect. And I think they were the first medical entity in the UHN system to have such a committee. And when I first started as a member of that committee, going to those meetings, I saw the different things that were measured for quality and for safety. And so I asked if emotional care was ever measured. I mean, if people feel good about their experience, if they feel that they have a good relationship with their care providers, their primary physicians and so on. And I was told, no, 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 it can't be quantified. So therefore we don't do it. So I thought, okay, I got to wait. I got to learn more about how things are measured. I have to learn more about what is valued by the people, terrific people, well-trained, caring, what matters to them, what is their language, and how do I insert this notion of emotional care? So like a lot of things, timing is everything. And there was a change in leadership about a year later, and I asked the question again and got a very different response. And we began to have a conversation of one of the key things I should say about being a patient partner is you're not there, you don't participate in this program to fix your own issue. That may be the starting spot, but you're there to address issues that affect large numbers of patients. I mean, it is the major criticism that hospitals have is that people do not feel listened to. They don't feel that they are partners in their care. They don't feel that their fears and anxieties about their medical issues are taken into account. And so I told my story, and that led to a number of interesting conversations about, well, what could be done? How do you measure this? Are the tools that Princess Margaret in particular has had in place, are they the right ones? Are they working for people? Who are they working for? Who aren't they working for? It's just putting forward the idea that this is part of patient care. It's not only removing the tumor. It's not only taking the drugs to kill tumors or radiation. I mean, this does not supersede any of that. But if a person is going to heal, then their fears, their anxieties, their terror. I mean, it is a terrifying experience to be told that you have cancer. I personally think common sense tells me that it can be assumed that patients are terrified. I understand you need to verify that with research, but I think that that is the beginning point for patients. And I just think that if people are really going to heal and they're not going to be haunted by the memories of their cancer experience, that that's the piece that really needs to be attended to in addition to the surgery or the chemo or the radiation or, or whatever. And I just feel that in the four years, four and a half years that I have been involved in these conversations, things have changed 
hugely. This is now on people's radar and they want to do better. And I'm very honored to be, have been able to have some influence on this and to be part of the conversation. So taking the lessons from your experience and experience of the university hospital networks, what advice would you give to someone who's dealing with the cancer diagnosis today, perhaps outside of Toronto? What would be your word of advice to someone like that? Well, I have advice for two sides of that relationship because there's the patient, as you've asked me, but but there's also the health the healthcare the provider. Living, yeah. The healthcare provider. So so both players have have a really important role. So for the patient, I would say arm yourself. This is a marathon, even if you've never run one. It is a lot of hard work. So arm yourself. I mean, get healthy, do your own research, have your list of questions, have somebody, you know, not maybe your immediate family, but a friend. I did it. You know, you get this information in one ear out there because you're in such a panic. You're not listening. So, you know, my friend would make notes and we would review them afterwards. That was enormously helpful to me. I would say surround yourself with good people that you trust who can help you find the information that you need because you'll need a lot of information. The expectation is increasingly, I think, I can't speak for health providers outside of Toronto because this is what I know, but you have to make certain decisions and you want to make informed decisions. So you want to ask lots of questions and remember that you are entitled. You are entitled as a patient to ask those questions. I think you may have to remind your healthcare provider that you are more than a patient and you are more than a tumor and you are more than an illness. You are mother, father, sister, brother, you're a tradesperson, you're a, a man. I mean, you have life experience, you have a skill set. So you know how to analyze things, maybe in a way, you know how to, to ask questions, keep your feet on the ground and remember you are that whole person. You are not just a disease. You are not just a disease. And I would say on the other side, the healthcare providers, open up those windows, open up those doors, see your patients as whole people. Somebody on the team, I, I recognize that surgeons, oncologists are really, really, really busy. And so maybe it's not that person's responsibility to answer all the questions, but find out for your patients, how they connect with other resources, other support groups, other people who are going through the same thing. I mean, we are a sharing environment. I mean, whether it's online or offline, I mean, we share information, we share experiences. Recognize that your patient has needs beyond the addressing of the immediate cancer. And as I said, I recognize that not everybody has the skill set to have those conversations. And they may not even have the time, but somebody in the hospital environment, somebody in the clinic, somebody can do this and somebody needs to do this. And when a patient feels that his or her whole set of needs are looked after, their ability to recover is much, much improved. Their ability to engage as a partner in their care is much improved. And although it always sounds like air quotes, more work. It's really not. Engaging with patients is no more work because not engaging with patients means more anxiety, more uncertainty, more who do I call when I need 
more appointments. So I, I think that there are many, many benefits to the delivery of care as well as the experience of care. So not so much more work, but potentially more benefits. I think much more benefits. And I, as I say, I recognize that people who are already busy might feel this is not for me. This is not my training. I can't do more. I only have 10 minutes with my patient. So I get that. But there are other people who are available, other people who should be available, other resources. So listen to what your patients need and support them in that because this is a journey. It's a really, really tough one. And it's really terrifying. And when you are overwhelmed with that terror, it's hard to pay attention to all the other things that you might need to do, might need to know about. I'm reflecting on your description of your relationship with the plastic surgeon and how important that connection of athlete to athlete was, <laughs> where you were seen as who you are. I know that you've returned to running marathons quite quickly, six months after your cancer treatment. It's actually a pretty outstanding achievement. It's um, pretty and- crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So clearly running has been a very important aspect of your recovery and your life. What does running mean to you? I want to say just on behalf of the plastic surgeon who's not here to defend <laughs> himself, It was useful for me to connect with him as an athlete to athlete, but my hunch is he would give anybody, everybody that time. But it was particularly important to me for him to see me as an athlete. I mean, Bogda, yes. I'm seven, I'm, I'm, I'm 71 years old. So I'm not 20. I mean, I'm not going to the Olympics. That train has, has left the station, but I, I have always loved physical activity. I've always loved the notion of moving my body through through time and space. I'm fortunate that I am able-bodied for now. I want to use my able-bodiedness for as long as I can. I mean, there's a feminist filter on this. When I was growing up, there was all kinds of sports that girls were not allowed to do. Well, 1984 was the first time a marathon had been hosted by the Olympics. That's in my lifetime. It might be on in the lifetime of, of your listeners. So this is all recent history. So to be perfectly honest, every time I lace up my runners and I head out the door, I feel like I'm still making a statement, even though in this country, anyways, women are 50% of the population, and we are often 55 to 60% of any long distance run. So women have really taken over running, which pleases me no end. But I still remember the era when it wasn't permissible. So there is a feminist filter on this. But it, it just gives me enormous pleasure. I just feel strong. I feel, I mean, I doubt that I look like a Kenyan uh, or running like an Ethiopian, but I feel like I could, you know. And I just think that to have a sense of your physicality is brilliant. You know, it makes you feel strong. It makes you feel confident. Those are just all the qualities that running gives me. And I feel lucky in a way that I started my career, if you like, as a master's runner relatively late. So that means that the sensitive areas of the body, like the hips and the knees, are fine. Might not always be that way, but right now they're fine. And so... So six months after my surgery, I ran Chicago. It was pretty ugly, but I ran it. And then a year later, a year to the day, I ran London, the London Marathon. So this is the last major for me. I think I'm going to retire from marathons after that. But it gives me enormous 
pleasure. And so it for me, it was really important that this plastic surgeon who certainly knew his his stuff and who supported the decision that I needed to make assured me that this was temporary, that I would I would be able to continue with this component of my life that mattered so much. And I was very happy when I saw him, uh, I think it was about a year later, and said, you know, <laughs> you were right. You were right. You may, I don't know what else you're right about. You were right about this. And I was very, very grateful to him. But I think in part, it's because he saw me as a whole person. He gave me an hour. Imagine that, an hour of his time. I mean, I felt very guilty when I walked back out into the waiting room because I was just filled with patients. But he gave that time to me and he answered all of my questions. And that's when I knew I was going to be okay. So that helped enormously. So the message really is that if you're a concert pianist, you do not need a plastic surgeon who's a concert pianist. You just need a surgeon who can see you for who you are, whoever you might be. I absolutely. And who recognizes what's important to you. And if listening to music, if producing music, if playing music is what you thrive on, then you want to know that you're going to be able to do that after or how it will need to be modified. I mean, I don't think this is about misleading people or fooling people, but it's it's hearing what matters. And, and I mean, we all want to be healthy. We all want to be strong. We all want to live, I think, a nice long life. But there are other things in our lives, our relationships with people, the work we do, the other interests we have. And it's wonderful that you're doing something about it. So, Phyllis, we're coming to the end of our discussion, but I'd like to ask you one final question, question that I'm hoping of asking everybody. <laughs> Your top reason why supportive care in cancer matters? I would say my top reason is that it's part of the healing process. It's part of the healing process. It's not just your stitches. It's not just surviving chemo or receiving chemo. It's part of how people heal and recover and deal with the trauma of a diagnosis they may not be prepared for. And I think that cancer still has the capacity to terrify people. I know a great deal of progress has been made in terms of research, in terms of the specificity of chemo and things like that, and in terms of prevention, but it still has the capacity to scare people to the extreme. And I just think if medically we want people to heal, then there needs to be a broader view of what goes into that healing. That's why the patient experience matters so much. I have absolutely nothing to add. That's a wonderful finish to the very first podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Phyllis. That is all for Supportive Care Matters, a podcast created by me, Bogda Kozwara, for researchers, clinicians, policymakers, and patients passionate about improving the lives of people affected by cancer. Thanks to Mark Tai, who composed the original music, the Oncology Network, our producers, and Canteen, our sponsors. For show notes, go to www.oncologynews.com.au. Subscribe to this podcast at your favorite podcast provider and rate us. It will help others find us.